Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's great to have you with us here on Good Friday. I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here. And you know, I was talking to a man in our church recently, and this man is 99 years old. 99 years old. His name is Joe. And um, Joe is a lovely man. He usually comes along to our night services, hangs out with the young adults, and uh, he's, a, he's a really good guy. And um, I've been talking to him the last few years. He didn't grow up as a man of faith. He was actually born in England, and he actually fought in World War II. Now, he was shot in the head in World War II, was sent back home to England, recovered, survived, and is still here to this day. Every time I say, hey, Joe, it's good to see you at church on Sunday night, he says, I'm still here. Every time. And as Joe and I have spoken a little bit about faith and about Jesus, he, he loves what we have, but he's always said, he's got this question. Fighting in World War II, seeing all those people die, all that suffering, he asks, you know, how could God have allowed that? How could God have allowed such suffering and cruelty to happen? I'm sure some of you have asked that question here today. How could a good God allow suffering? You know, maybe for you it's in your own personal suffering. Maybe you've experienced or seen cancer. Maybe it's the crisis in Ukraine right now and you wonder, how can God allow this? And you see, that's the question we are asking today. How could a good God allow suffering? And the reason we're asking this is because we're in a series right now as a church. We've been in it for the last couple of weeks called, I Have a Question. We've been asking tough questions about the Christian faith and looking to the scriptures for answers. And today on Good Friday, we ask, how could a good God allow suffering? Now, that's an important question to ask. If you're a Christian, that's really important because this question threatens to undermine the Bible's claim that God is both all-powerful and all-good. If suffering proves God is not good, then we should be terrified of Him. If suffering proves God is not powerful, then we should despair. And if suffering proves God doesn't exist at all, then we're all wasting our time here this morning. But even if you're not a Christian, this question is important. Because the atheistic worldview doesn't actually give you anything in your suffering. All you're left with is the blind, pitiless forces of nature. When you suffer and you cry out, why? All you hear is the silent indifference of the universe. Atheism doesn't help you in your suffering. But if the Bible's claim is true that God is good and all-powerful, your suffering can have meaning and it doesn't have to have the final word in your life. So it's an important question to ask. And it's an appropriate question to deal with on Good Friday. Because on Good Friday, we see one of the darkest days of suffering to ever occur in human history. The trial, torture, and tragic murder of Jesus of Nazareth was one of the most unjust executions of who I would say was the most innocent and pure man to walk this earth. And it's actually in Jesus' suffering on Good Friday that Christianity offers some answers and some help to the question, how could a good God allow suffering? So I'm just going to storytell 
the events of Good Friday right now. We're going to enter into that story together. And in case you're interested, I'm telling it as it's recorded in Mark's gospel. I'll be starting in Mark 14, verse 32, to Mark 15, verse 39. And as I retell the story, I want you to notice all the different ways that Jesus suffers in this story. And then as we come out of that story, we'll look at how it helps us to answer our question this morning. So on the night of Good Friday, that night, many thousands of years ago in Israel, Jesus took his disciples out to a garden. And as he was walking with them and he, as he approached the garden, he told them to stop and to wait here while he went over there and prayed. And he took three of his closest followers with him, including Peter, three of his closest friends. And he walked towards the garden. And as he walked, he became visibly distressed. He said to them, I feel like I'm going to die. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Would you stop here and wait and watch with me and pray with me? while I go over there. And as Jesus walked a little further into the garden, he fell down to his knees and he cried out, Papa, Father, you can do anything. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he cried out like that for an hour, just praying to his father, Papa, Father, take this cup. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And after an hour of crying out to God like that, he went back to his closest friends and he found them sleeping in his hour of need. And he said to Peter, wake up. Couldn't you have prayed with me for one hour? Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. And he went back, and he prayed, and he cried out to his father. And as he came back, his friends were sleeping yet again. And a third time, the same thing happened. And on the third time, Jesus said, wake up. The time is at hand. I'm about to be delivered into the hands of sinners. Look, my betrayer is here. And as they walked out of the garden to see this band of thugs that were coming in, one of his 12 disciples, Judas, was leading them. And Judas had told them beforehand, he said, hey, I'm going to tell you who Jesus is, the one that you need to arrest, by warmly greeting him with a kiss. And so as Jesus came out, Judas said, Rabbi, and gave him a kiss, and he was seized in that moment. And one of Jesus' disciples got upset about this and thought it's time to defend our Messiah, and he cut off one of the ears of the servants but Jesus made clear that he wasn't there to do violence. He said, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out and gotten me like this? Is this how you arrest me in the darkness? I taught publicly in the temple day after day, and yet you arrest me like this. But let the scriptures and all that's been written in God's word be fulfilled. And in that moment, the disciples realizing this wasn't going to be a violent defense they fled away, except for one, Peter. Peter trailed behind the group of them from a distance, and he watched them as they went back into the city of Jerusalem. And he followed them into the high priest's house. And as they took Jesus inside, Peter went and sat down in a courtyard and 
warmed himself by a fire. And as Jesus entered the room of the high priest's house, all the highest officials of Israel were there. The Bible scholars, the chief priests, the high priest himself were there and they were ready to put Jesus to trial. And so they sat Jesus down and they called in witness after witness to try and find a way to put Jesus to death. And all these people accused Jesus of all sorts of different things. And eventually the high priest got up and said to Jesus, aren't you hearing what they're saying? Are you going to say anything? But Jesus remained silent. He opened not his mouth. And they continued to accuse him. And eventually the high priest got up and said to Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And let me tell you this. You will see the Son of Man seated at the hand of the Almighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And at this, the high priest tore his robe. He said, did you hear what he just said? This is blasphemy. What do you say? And they all condemned him to death. Now, the reason he thought this was blasphemy was not simply because Jesus said, I am the Messiah, a human king God would approve and send. But he said, I'm the son of man. That's a, that's a role that comes from Daniel chapter 7. And the son of man is this exalted figure. He's given glory and power and a kingdom. And all the nations come and bow before him and worship him. And Jesus said, I am the son of man. And so he tore his robes. And he said, that's blasphemy. And the guards and the people around him began to mock him. And they spat on him. And they blindfolded him and they hit him and they said, prophesy, who hit you? Prophesy. Meanwhile, outside, one of Jesus' closest friends, Peter, had denied him three times. He disowned his friend in this hour of trial. And when he realized what he'd done, he broke down and wept. For the rest of that night, the highest officials in Israel, they plotted how to get rid of Jesus. You see, they were under the power of the Roman Empire at this stage. They weren't a free nation. So they didn't have the authority to legally execute someone. They needed Rome's authority to do that. And so they plotted. They knew Pilate, the Roman governor, wouldn't care about a religious issue. That Jesus had claimed to be someone from Daniel chapter 7. Pilate wouldn't care about that. They had to be more cunning than that. And so we can tell from Pilate's response that what they really said was that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, which he did. They said he, he claims to be a king, the king of Israel, which means he's a rival to Caesar, the king of Rome. And so in the early hours of the morning, they take him to Pilate, the governor in that area. And Pilate says to him, so you are the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, the words just came out of your mouth. And they continued to accuse him. And Pilate said, listen to everything that they're saying. Aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus opened not his mouth. He remained silent. And around that time of year, it was Pilate's custom to release a Jewish prisoner from jail when they asked. And so a whole bunch of Jewish people had come before Pilate and he said to them, would you like me to release this king of the Jews for you? 
But they didn't re- he didn't realize the chief priest had already stirred them up to ask for someone else, to ask for Barabbas to be released instead. Now, Barabbas was in prisoner for murder, but he wasn't just a run-of-the-mill murderer. He was an insurrectionist, which means he was a freedom fighter. He was a nationalist. He was a patriot. He hated Rome. He wanted to help Israel get free from Rome, so he was involved in violent opposition to Rome. So he would have been popular in Israel. He would have been like a nationalistic hero who was in prison. And the chief priest stirred them up to choose the violent revolutionary over the peaceful, humble Messiah. And so Pilate said to them, well, what would you have me do with this Jesus who you call the king of the Jews? And they said, crucify him. But what evil has he done? And they said, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to save his political career, cared more about his politics than justice, sentenced him to crucifixion, and then sentenced him to flogging. And the Roman flogging, it was brutal. They put metal and glass on the end of whips, and they would flay the person's back and rip up flesh. And they flogged Jesus. And then the Roman soldiers took Jesus further into the palace, and they got the whole battalion together. That could be up to 600 soldiers And they decided, here, we're going to entertain ourselves with this Jewish prisoner, this guy who's been accused of being the king of the Jews. So they put this purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they placed it on his head. And with a reed, they beat him on the head. And people were shouting, Hail, king of the Jews, as they mocked him. And some of them would bow down before him and pretend to pay homage to him like they would to Caesar. They mocked him, they beat him, they spat on him. And then they took him out to crucify him. And along the way, Jesus was in such a terrible state that he couldn't carry his cross. So they forced someone else to carry it for him. And when they arrived at the hill, they crucified Jesus. They hung him on the cross. And the Roman soldiers were so used to this barbarity that they just gambled in front of the cross over his clothes because they were just of a bit of value. And it was done by a public road, so Jews walking past would wag their heads at him and and say, you thought you could destroy our great temple? Save yourself, come down from the cross. And the chief priests mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the king of the Jews, the Messiah, he can come down now and save himself and we'll believe in him then. And they heaped insult upon insult on him. And at midday, darkness covered the whole land. The sun stopped shining. And Jesus hung there, being crucified, suffocating to death for three hours in the darkness. And at the end of those three hours, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. God, why have you forsaken me? And with one last great cry, he breathed his last breath. And a Roman soldier of all people, standing nearby, saw how Jesus died. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. 
That's what happened on Good Friday. But how does this story help us to understand our question? Well, remember how Jesus was on trial in front of the Jewish authorities and he said that he was the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven? He claimed to be more than just a man. He claimed to be divine. See, all that suffering in that story on Good Friday, that wasn't just the suffering of a good man. That was the suffering of the God-man. Good Friday shows us that God suffered in Jesus. God suffered in Jesus. Everything he went through on Good Friday, the psychological anguish in the garden, the abandonment of his friends, the loneliness of his suffering, the betrayal of Judas, the false trial, the false accusations, the beatings, the mocking, the flogging, the crucifixion, all of it was suffered by God in Jesus. And you see, this really changes our question. Our question is no longer simply, how could a good God allow suffering? But how could an all-powerful God allow himself to suffer like this? And if we can point to good reasons, if he had good reasons to put himself through suffering, then perhaps we can think of good reasons why he would create a world with suffering. So why did God choose to suffer in Jesus? Well, there are so many reasons we could point to, but here's the main one. God chose to suffer in Jesus so we wouldn't have to drink the cup of judgment. God chose to suffer in Jesus so that we wouldn't have to drink that cup of judgment. You remember how Jesus was in the garden, he was overwhelmed, he fell to the ground, and he was asking his father to take this cup? Well, that cup was a cup of judgment. We see the imagery in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 51, it says, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. The cup of judgment was a stomach-churning image. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples that he felt like he was going to die. He knew he was about to drink this cup. And not just for one person, but for all of God's wayward people. Only the noblest person would ever choose to drink this cup for others. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You see, two chapters later in Isaiah, we read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, God is just. He is our judge. He doesn't enjoy people suffering, but he will never pervert justice. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. You see, as human beings, we bear God's image. We're meant to bear his image into the world, to represent to the rest of the world God's goodness and love and kindness and generosity. And instead, the human race 
has filled the earth with greed and indulgence and violence and division. We've earned God's judgment. But because of his love for us, Jesus drank the cup so that we wouldn't have to drink the cup of judgment. Out of his great mercy, out of his great love for sinners, he drank it to the dregs. And because God suffered in Jesus, it means that he is not cool or distant or indifferent to our pain, but he cares deeply. He entered into it. The divine creator allowed himself to be embodied in space and time, able to sweat and suffer and die on the cross. And he did it for people like you and me. He did it out of his great love and deep care for his children. Good Friday tells us that God loves you. God loves you with an excruciating kind of love. So how could a good God allow suffering? Well, Good Friday shows us that suffering can serve a good purpose. Just like if I take my little boys to the doctors and they put a needle in their flesh and it hurts and they cry and they look at me through tears of betrayal, I alone know that this injection can save them from future diseases. We can think of good reasons for suffering. A good God would allow suffering if it achieved nobler ends than if he hadn't allowed it. And Good Friday shows us that the suffering of one man secured the salvation of the world. It shows us that God has not shielded himself from our pain, but the man who was flogged and beaten and crucified was God in Christ. We won't always understand why God allows suffering in our lives. In fact, even though Jesus knew why he was suffering, it didn't lessen his pain. He still cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Good Friday is there to show us that we can know God is always good. A man called Johnny Gibson makes this point in a book called The Moon is Always Round. And Johnny based it on a real experience he had with his son, Ben. On March 17th, 2016, Johnny's daughter, Layla, was born. And Johnny brought his son, Ben, to a hospital a few hours later to meet his new sister. Ben gave her a toy giraffe, and he held her for the first time. And as Johnny tells the story, he, he says two things stuck out at him. As his son held Layla in his arms, she never made a sound, and she never opened her eyes. And he says he points it out because Layla was stillborn. The reason Johnny wrote this book was to help explain suffering to children. And it grew out of a conversation he had with his son Ben later that night while they were driving home. And in the car, Ben asked his dad a question. Daddy, will mummy ever grow a baby that wakes up? Johnny said, I don't know, but let's pray that she does. Daddy, why isn't Layla coming home with us? Because she's going to be with Jesus. Why is she going to be with Jesus? Because Jesus called her name. But will she come to be with us after she's been with Jesus in heaven? No, Ben. 
When you're with Jesus, you don't want to go anywhere else. Why? Because Jesus is just such a wonderful person. Daddy, why isn't she coming home? And Johnny said, Ben, I don't really know why. Then Johnny began to talk to Ben about the moon. He explained to his son that the moon is always round. But even though it's always round, we can't always see that. We don't often get a full moon in our skies. And it's the same thing with the goodness of God. God is always good. But especially in our suffering and in our pain, we can't always see that. We can't always understand God's goodness, but he still remains good, just as the moon remains round. And Good Friday tells us that God cannot be anything other than good. The one who suffered was no mere man. He was God in the flesh. So God knows how we feel when we suffer. He comforts us in our sorrows. And he assures us that his suffering was worth it. Because his suffering secured freedom and forgiveness and eternal life for everyone who trusts in him. We're now going to join in the Lord's Supper together. And this is really a fitting way to respond to Good Friday. Because Jesus himself instituted this meal just before he went out to the garden that night. And he used this meal to explain his death. You see, the cup represents the blood that Jesus shed to purify us from our sins. And the bread represents Jesus' body given for us at the cross. Jesus' death ensured that we don't have to drink from the cup of judgment, remember? Instead, through faith in Jesus, we now drink from the Lord's cup. He's made us children of God. We've been given a privileged seat at the table, and he invites us as free and forgiven people to dine with him. If you weren't following Jesus before you came here today, perhaps you wouldn't have called yourself a Christian. But after hearing what he did for you, if you're ready to do that, then you can respond to him in faith this morning by coming to the table and accepting what Jesus offers you as a sheer gift. You don't have to earn it. You just have to believe and trust in Jesus.